Hello, welcome to Wellbeings. Today's episode, as always, is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law, and by Birdie Scrubs, the most comfortable medical apparel on the entire planet. I have a fun time today speaking with longtime friend of mine, Timothy Jindra. Tim was a roommate of mine in college who has gone on to become a licensed mental health counselor and a semi-professional musician. His band, High Mountain Soul, recently released their first EP, and it is a great listen, so go check it out on Apple Music or Spotify. Tim and I talk about the process involved with creating this EP. We talk about songwriting, we talk about production, we talk about engineering, and then, of course, we shift into his time working at a high-end rehab in Utah. We talk about addiction, we talk about alcoholism, we talk about the effects that substances have on the brain. We, in fact, spoke for so long that we ran out of time and we agreed to come back for a part two in which we will talk about his life as a private practice therapist and then segue into talking about all of the strange things that can't be explained in the world. So it's a pretty broad topic and I'm sure we're going to have a great time in that topic. So make sure you come back for part two of this. And in the meantime, enjoy part one. I'll just, I'm just going to, here we go. Tim Jindra, welcome. Hey, thanks a lot, Tyler. I appreciate being here with you. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. So uh, Tim and I, uh, we've been friends since college, which is what, 25 years now? And uh, yeah, long time. Long. And so it's going to be great to catch up with you on here. Um, you, you are... Uh, a singer, songwriter, guitarist for a band called High Mountain Soul out of Utah. And congratulations, you just released your first EP, right? Yes, we sure did. We're excited. Yeah, you should be. I've listened to the album and it's uh, it's fantastic. So let's kind of start by talking about this album. Um, and I want everyone to hear it for themselves, but I'm going to ask you just kind of a simple question, but it's one that kind of stumps me when people ask me what kind of music do I listen to or do I like or I play. So I'll ask you, what kind of music is it? How do you, how do you genreify it, if that's a word? Good question. Well, I think it's Americana music, whatever that means. I think it's, you know, uh, folk music. I think you could uh, say there's a little rock and roll. I, I grew up playing Metallica and ACDC and uh, went to a lot of Pantera shows and White Zombie. So one of my favorite guitar players was Dimebag Daryl from Pantera. And unfortunately, with folk music, you just don't get to do some screaming solos and, and <laughs> rock and roll and riffs like that all the time. Uh, but, you know, that one song, Rocky Top Mountain, I was able to sneak in some good old fashion Dimebag Daryl licks in that one. So so I, I grew up playing uh, more heavier sounds, heavier blues. And then over time, I think I returned to my roots, which is, you know, just the uh, stuff that I would hear my mom playing on her guitar growing up, uh, 60s and 70s folk tunes, uh, things like uh, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, um, uh, everything from Cat Stevens to Creedence Clearwater Revival, as well as uh, uh, guys like Sam Cooke, who we did a cover of his song Cupid, who yeah. I think is one of the best songwriters uh, in the history of the United States. He is fantastic, and um, thanks for that reminder. I'm going to dive back into some Sam Cooke stuff. 
So lots of lots of influences there. Everything from the Beach Boys to Pantera, quite a quite a spread of uh, yeah. influences there, and I can hear that in the in the songs. Um, tell me tell me the origin story. I'm always curious about this. Tell me tell me a High Mountain Souls origin story. How did you guys start up? Well, you know, uh, I have been playing uh, kind of around resorts here in Utah for some time, and my buddy Steve King also was in different bands and uh he and i would cross paths with with different folks that used to be in different bands that we he and i used to play with and uh and so he and i started the band and we didn't have i think we were calling ourselves mountain soul and there was a band uh i think out of tennessee or um some some place out east that was called mountain soul and so we had a show coming up and we decided to change it to high mountain soul utah actually means people of the high mountains yeah. uh from that you oh, indian that. that's the name Didn't that's it? what utah means yeah so we we decided to to kind of take that and uh and started rehearsing here in provo utah i'm originally from akron ohio and uh and so we kind of had i would say it was kind of uh, a little blend of we had a keyboard player um uh, his name was Al and a guitar, uh, another guitar player named Ashton and a bass player named Rusty. And Steve was actually playing percussion. And then we kind of all moved around and played different instruments and different people have come and gone. Um, but the latest incarnation of High Mountain Soul is Noah Adams on drums, who's a young guy, only 21 years old and brings a real youthful uh, energy to the percussion. And then Steve, our old percussionist, uh, who started with me in the band, he slid over to guitar. And so we had two guitar players. And then we kind of just had different people uh, fill in for bass when we played live shows. But uh, we were really happy to have Joel Pack, who's uh, produced the album and who runs uh, Rigby Road Studios. And uh, we we're real fortunate to have him play bass uh, on the record. So that was great. That is that is great. So so, how many how many band members are there right now? Right now, there's only just three of us: Noah Adams, uh, Steve King, and myself. Um, but on the record, you have Aaron Child, who's playing slide guitar. Um, I was going to ask. I heard I heard the steel guitar in there, and I wondered is, who's playing that. And I, I also wondered if it was maybe a synthesizer because it sounded so so good. But um. well, we did have some keys that were added in in as well, some keyboards. Uh, Aaron Child, if you've heard of Joshua James, he's played a lot of shows live with uh, uh, folks like that and some other bands as well. Is a great, phenomenal guitar player. Um, and then we also had a gal named Camille Nelson, who's who's a wonderful singer songwriter. Um, and she joined us uh, to do some, uh, we needed some female vocals for Play Me a Song. And she kind of came in and did some backup there. And that was great. Mm, yeah, it sounds really, really good. That was fantastic. Now, when when you guys started, you, uh, who was it Steve, the, the other the other guy that yes. you started with? So when you started, was the intention to always form a band or was it like we're, we're just going to hang out and jam for a while and then it kind of evolved into let's get a band together or was it always from the very beginning, we want to we start a band, so let's start soliciting different band members? That's a good question. I, you know, at the time I had finished up building a recording studio in my basement. And so I spent from about 
I, I wrapped up grad school when I was about 29, uh, 30, and we bought a new house in Provo. And, uh, and one of the first things I wanted to do was create a space to write and record music. And that took a couple of years to kind of finalize the studio, to build the space and uh, acoustically treat it. And then, you know, to start buying the electronics like microphones and all the stuff that you need, pro tools as far as software. And then I reached out to some friends uh, and uh, Steve King and I decided we wanted to have a band. We wanted to start playing live. And the goal was to record. And what happened is uh, you had these uh, musicians that know how to play music, but unfortunately didn't know anything about recording. And I think we were in for a surprise when we had to learn the ropes uh, from the ground up, which is like learning a new instrument mm. uh, or complicated when you think about all the uh, intricacies associated with recording placement of microphones, what to do, what kind of quality microphones, what type of microphone to use uh, for the kick drum and for the snare and for, you know, just all the stuff that I didn't have any idea about and what we were finding is we were doing okay and we were making these recordings and they were sounding okay and then guess what i accidentally erased uh the whole uh hard drive no i thought i was un uninstalling a uh, uh a plug-in for my pro tools program which is those are different effects you can add to your recording software and uh unfortunately i erased the whole thing i think it was a real discouraging thing for the band because uh, we had a uh, a violin player and we, we just had all these uh, different folks that had had spent quite a bit of time working on this record we were doing and what poof, a tragedy oh man <laughs> how many hours was, did you lose oh uh i would say thousands of hours probably oh, of what material. a kick in the teeth on the computer you know and so what were they what around when that happened uh they found out the next week <laughs> and it was it, it, I, I could tell it was kind of discouraging and I felt bad. And I, I think we took a little breather from recording. Um, my friend Steve's in another band, uh, which is a great band called Penitent Man. And they started picking up uh, more gigs and playing more. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to, you know, I need to solicit some help uh, because I don't, you know, I, I want to speed the process along. I didn't want to spend countless hours mixing and mastering when i don't even know what the heck i'm doing so i reached out to an old friend joel pack who is a producer and also was a, a longtime friend we used to work at a guitar shop back when we were in our 20s and uh, and he became uh, a well-known producer here in salt lake and has uh, done a lot of recording and, and does a lot of uh of his own uh, singer songwriter stuff as well he's got a band called broke city which is a great band they have a lot of great songs hmm. and so reached out to joel and we started recording and got noah adams and steve king to come into the recording studio and i think they were pleased uh you know having a professional space to record in yeah so this album was not done in your in your home studio then uh believe it or not some of the songs uh are done some of the lyrics like on uh Hear It on the Mountain and Rocky Top Mountain. Both of those songs were started here in my recording studio. And so some of the vocals, some of the guitar, <clears throat> some of that rocking guitar, believe it or not, on Rocky Top Mountain, uh, we did just with an old-fashioned Shure 57 mic uh, right up to the amp. Hmm. And so 
Sounds really yeah. good. It's a vibrato deluxe Fender amp, a kind of. I think it's a fifty something reissue. It's a fun amp. A tube amp. Yeah, it's a tube amp. It's great. Yeah. There's a lot to think about when recording, huh? There is, and you know, uh, so you can add too much. Uh, sometimes you 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 want to keep it simple, and and uh, and then other times it sure sounds good to add some bells and whistles too. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like you, like you said, it's almost like learning an uh, an entirely new instrument. The the recording process. Yeah. When when you're recording something yourself and you're producing something yourself, and so let's say you you're recording one track and then you go back and you play another track and then you go back and you're 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 mixing it and you're producing it and you're listening to yourself play and you're you're mixing it all. When you hear imperfections, and now you're now you've taken off your guitar player hat and you're wearing your producer hat, are you more inclined to try to paper over it with the production, or more inclined to go back and record it and re-record it and re-record it until it's perfect? Well, at first, I think we tried to paper over one of the things we learned uh, recording live because we were kind of experimenting doing a lot of live recordings as well, where we just put a microphone or two in the center of the room and try to pick up how we sounded live. And uh, one of the things we learned is that uh, it's a pretty tough process when you can't go back, you know, if you got the bass kind of here, you can't, and there's maybe one mistake over here on, on a, a guitar or keyboards and you only have a couple of mics, you can't go back and re, you know, retrack or fix that little thing. It's, you get what you get. And so it was kind of nice when we went to Rigby road studios and, you know, maybe, you're on the third chorus and you make a mistake and you can go back and, and, and fix that and patch that up a little bit. But I think what I learned from Joel is no matter what, and we've all heard this phrase, you can put lipstick on a pig. If it didn't sound good the first time, it's best to go back and redo it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that with my, with a little experience I've had, you know, I, I've tried to, I've tried to paper over my mistakes and it just ends up sounding noisy. It's kind of fuzzy and noisy. Um, you, there are, Oh, let me ask you this. What's the biggest, what's, what's the biggest difference or the biggest benefit maybe uh, to, to using a professional studio as opposed to using your studio? Cause your studio, I mean, to the uninitiated seems you know, by far well enough. Well, it, thank you. And then it's a nice uh, small little studio um, first of all, we've never had a producer. So to have uh, somebody say that doesn't sound good, you, no, don't do that. Or, oh, I like that. You know, well, maybe we ought to, you know, emphasize that piece more. Uh, your song's way too long. Let's cut out the third verse here. What Joel Pack helped with was to not only offer great engineering skills. And I think a lot of recording studios these days, you got a, a guy that's a great engineer, but also can produce that also can add in some instrumental pieces. And that's kind of what Joel offers when he's producing, but he's got a good ear. He works with a lot of bands um, professionally uh, that tour the world. One of, of course uh, you, you remember air supply. Oh yeah. Uh, he works in rec and records with those guys. And, uh, and I think, when I was recording with Joel back in 2020, kind of the pandemic was was upon us and uh, people were slowing down recording, but there were a few people going in and we were taking precautions, you know, wearing masks. But I think I snuck in between uh, Mindy Gledhill, who is uh, a, a well-known 
uh, singer songwriter here in uh, Provo, Utah. And then I think air supply as well. So it was kind of fun to know that uh, I was sneaking in between those guys. They wouldn't know who the hell I am, but uh, <laughs> I know who they are and they're great musicians. So it was great to have Joel Pack kind of help it guide. It's tough because I have a, a obsessive compulsive brain. And I think there were times where Joel was like, Hey, that's, that's good. Let's, let's move on. Why don't you release your song already? You know, why are you still, you know, kind of uh, messing around with this, but I think it, he was real patient with me uh, since it was my first, uh, you know, endeavor to make a, an EP. And so he was real helpful. And so that was the biggest difference. You know, when you're recording at home in the basement, it's just the band mm -hmm. and we're playing once a week or, you know, a few times a week. And so we don't always, uh, you don't have that outside perspective. We listen to the recordings and think, wow, that sounds like crap or gee, geez, this sounds pretty good. You know, mm -hmm. um, how did, did, was that hard on the ego at all? Having somebody with a real discerning ear come in and critique or criticize your, your music? No, I, I mean, in some ways, you know, like there are times where um, you hit the red button and uh, the recording light goes on and I think it's easy to freeze up. Uh, anybody that's played sports knows you practiced all week, but now you're on the field and you forget what to do because it's game time. You know, the, mm -hmm. the whistle blown, uh, you're on stage as a dancer and all of a sudden it's different than the way you rehearsed uh, through the week. And I think that's the same with music as well as, uh, you know, sometimes uh, when you're recording, you think, man, I could, I could nail that better or I could do this a little bit better. And I think Joel helped actually build my uh, ego up a little bit and gives confidence by, by encouraging me. Mm -hmm. and, and also I think, uh, when you recognize what some of your uh, weaknesses are, one of the things I think Joel helped with was to uh, emphasize the strengths. For example, with me, <clears throat> I'm more of a, I, I like lead guitar. I like to come and go. I like to be playing some, some notes and then maybe get off the guitar and focus on the singing. But most of the time in, in our music, there was times where I was where we were a three piece band at one point where we had a bass player named Jacob Moore and Steve King was playing drums and I just was on the guitar singing. And that I remember that being pretty taxing to do the lead guitar, the solos and try to do the rhythm and sing. And I, what I liked about kind of adding more guitar players was uh, I could kind of hang back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that. One of my flaws is, I, I think, is I'm not I'm not the best rhythm player. You don't want me playing guitar the whole way through a song. Let let me come in and do some solos here and maybe some uh, refrains or hooks here and there. But let some other guy kind of do the heavy lifting. You know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, there's I I know you. I'm not agreeing that you're not a good rhythm player, but. I am agreeing that there are different and different parts, different ways of playing guitar, and, and we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And some people just have that that just natural rhythm. I think I'm more more like you in the sense that I'd rather play lead. I like playing few licks here and there. Um, I, I just have more fun with that myself. Um, and rhythm was just never super natural to me. I had to learn rhythm. In fact, I remember I I met you because you were playing guitar. And we lived in a, in the same apartment complex and I heard you playing guitar and I, I know I'm, I, I'm fairly confident that's how our relationship started. I heard you playing guitar and then we decided to jam 
And you, you taught me a lot about playing guitar, but I remember trying to play rhythm while you would play lead. And, and that was probably the first time, you know, the first, but I, I hadn't had a lot of experience playing with other people, but I remember having a really hard time just like keeping rhythm. I, I don't have that internal metronome over, over the years. It's kind of, I've developed it, but it wasn't natural for me. Um, I'm going to ask a really elementary question here. One that I should know the answer to, uh, what does EP stand for? It is, you know, I, good question. I, I, I learned what it stood for and now I just forgot. Um, but I know that it means this, it's a, it's a record that has three to five songs or under 30 minutes, maybe six songs that's under 30 minutes or no longer than 30 minutes. Mm. And and why an I, why an EP? What what are the reasons to produce an EP as opposed to waiting for a full album? Well, I think because it was our first record and it was a slower process in the sense that I it's expensive to record. And so what I would do, and and also I work full time as a mental health counselor, and I have a private practice, and so I would spend most of the week, you know, working maybe going over a few parts that I was going to work on and then meet with Joel for uh, all day Friday or hang out for half a day and then come back, you know, every other weekend or every weekend for a little bit. And that process probably went on for about six weeks until the record was. So we, we finished the record pretty uh, quickly. Um, But, you know, I think one of the things that was difficult with the, with that process was, uh, as I, you know, I, th- I think the band at that point, we probably had about 30 songs as far as songs that were somewhere in the catalog. We probably knew about 10 or 12 of those songs really well. Um, and I've written countless songs. And so when we started to record, what happened was is some of the songs um, that I think we recorded maybe eight or nine songs, maybe 10, but, pretty quickly it was evident to joel the producer uh it was more evident to him than it was us that hey i think these are your five best songs and i think rather than keep tweaking these other songs which gets back to what you asked you know maybe we're trying to put a silk hat on a pig here and it's still a pig like (laughs) these other songs or they're not bad songs but they don't really fit with this particular record Mm. and one of the things we decided to do was, uh, and, and I think that you asked about if that was, you know, those kind of things, but kind of burst your ego. Mm-hmm. That was one situation where I thought, wait a second, these are good songs too. And they were longtime staples of our band. One song's called Rodeo that didn't make the cut and another one's called Mama's Been Crying. And they were kind of uh, country-esque, rock and rolly type songs with lots of bends and, uh, and uh, was were kind of the songs we would play live quite a bit, and we liked those songs. And so I think uh, when the other guys in the band heard that Joel thought those songs needed to be left out, I think all of us were a little bummed because we thought, "What's wrong with those songs? <laughs> <laughs> those are crowd favorites." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Joel, I was going to ask how how you decided which songs to include, but you kind of deferred to Joel on some of that. It sounds like. I think so. I think part, you know, Joel. Joel has an actual professional reputation. Um, we've been semi-professional musicians all these years. 
And so when Joel said, Hey, I think these are the best sounding songs. Why don't you start with these? And then we'll get, you know, we'll get rolling on some other songs, but I don't know about these ones. And that's typical of the recording process. I think most bands will tell you it's rare that every song you record is going to make a, make the final cut you know and sometimes it's not because of the quality of the songs it's just like uh for example rocky top mountain we released as a single um we thought it was a cool song and that's pretty uh emblematic of what we do like you can really hear the guitars and there's some lead guitar going and it's kind of rocking and rolling and that's a good example of probably how our live show might be like you know uh and but it didn't quite fit with the other five songs that were more slide guitar and a little bit more um, folk style, I think, you know, more Americana style. And so what we decided to do was release the one as a single because it didn't didn't quite fit. It's like everybody else is dressed up for the occasion and this guy wants to come in maybe with a, a Bahama shirt on or something. <laughs> There's always quite that work. guy. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, you, I I think you did a good job, or Joel did a good job of of selecting those songs. So does that mean that the you're gonna have a a Bahama a Bahama shirt coming up, a Bahama shirt album coming yeah. up next? Yeah, we'll have one. We're working uh, one that we're working on that I would love to get uh, Noah, our drummer, back up to the studio because it needs drums. Is a I would say kind of a uh, kind of a a folksy country bluegrass style uh guitar singing with a little bit of uh, violin going through and so it gives it kind of this gospel hymn style of uh uh the song and so it's a quite a little bit different a little bit more mellow than some of the stuff that i've released but i think uh i think it'll be good uh yeah i'm, I'm excited to hear it i i wish you gave me an offer maybe two years ago now to to play play banjo learn a banjo part for one of your songs and i really regret not doing that i was going through stuff in my life and i just i couldn't i didn't i never i never found the i guess motivation to do it um and, and I, I wish i would have but i just that's I'm, okay i'm not a banjo the player but stands. say again the offer still stands i'm putting the gift so you know mountain soul and a high mountain soul in a lot of ways is, is just the venue for um you know, the songs. And I think, uh, you know, I'm putting together a, a collection of guys again to, to celebrate the release. So maybe you ought to come and play, uh, some banjo. I would love or that. guitar. Yeah, I, I would guitar. love, yeah, I, guitar. I would be much more comfortable on than banjo. Um, yeah. but if I knew the song, I, I think now I'm in a place where I, where I'm able to devote more time to music. In fact, I've been playing music, quite a bit lately um and if i if i knew the song i could i could um learn the banjo part and i would it would be a lot of fun to play banjo with the group i've never done that i've played guitar in in a band type of a format uh many times now but not not yet with a banjo that'd be fun i've been working speaking of bluegrass i've been working on um have you heard doc watson's black mountain rag no i have not check it out or i'll send it oh, to you when we're when cool. we're done here it, it's just it, do you know who doc watson is i do uh-huh okay i figured you would um he's deceased now but i saw him shortly after i graduated high school and um they hey i, I don't know who the, i think i know who doc watson is but maybe we ought to cut that part out <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) We'll just leave this whole dialogue in because that's pretty (laughs) funny, actually. So Doc Watson, um, he is a bluegrass guitar player, uh, was a flat picker, one of the legends of of bluegrass. Uh, And he passed away. I want to say he was in his late 90s when he passed away. And, um, but up until the very end, so when I saw him, well, probably 15, I don't know, I guess 25 years ago now, um, they, they, he had two handlers that, that walked him out onto stage, all but carried him out there. I mean, the guy could barely walk. He was blind and they sat him on this chair and he was, I mean, he was obviously blind. I mean, you, just by looking at him, you know, he was blind because well, his eyes were closed and he was groping around at everything, but they put a guitar in his hand. And as soon as the guitar hit his hand, it was, it, it was like, he was just catapulted to another universe and he just shredded, melted my face off. It was unbelievable. And, um, black mountain rag is one of his really fast flat picking songs. And I had gotten away from using a pick. Um, and so it's kind of challenging to start using a pick again, but I got the hang of it and I've been kind of tooling, tooling around with that song. It's a, it's a fun song to learn. Um, so I I have to play it. That's cool. Yeah. A couple of weeks we'll be up there. Yeah. So rock it out. Um, what does, what does. Okay, there's there's kind of a two-part question. So maybe I'll ask you first, uh, ask it as it pertains to you first, rather. What does songwriting look like to you? Do you create the guitar part first? Do you create the lyrics first? Do they happen independently? Oh, I have these words. I need to find a song. How? Do, what does that process look like for you? Well, you know, I've been writing songs since I was a little kid, probably since I was about five years old. I was, you know, singing these little melodies to myself and I'd write little songs about different things. And so at first it it often was just starting with kind of uh, the way somebody might put a pencil to paper in their journal. You know, maybe you're just writing some things uh, on a notepad and then those words might lead to maybe, you know, a verse. Uh, But a lot of times, uh, sometimes it's just the melody that you pull out of the chord structure that, you know, you put a, a G and a C together and guess what, you know, pretty soon you're going to an A minor and then all of a sudden you have the right word to go in that space. Um, for me, when I hear music, uh, there's already something in my mind swirling around because I feel like I'm connected to the collective consciousness of the whole world. In other words, what's going on in one corner of the globe, I feel is connected to me, even though I may not always be aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Jung talked about this, that we're all psychically connected. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we've learned with the speed of uh, kind of information coming at us in all sorts of ways is that it shows you how connected we are at times. You know, I think the pandemic has revealed to uh, the collective suffering and anxieties of the world as governments kind of wobbled uh, with their stability at times, as we're seeing here in the United States as well. And uh, it gave rise to a lot of, uh, um, unfortunately, to a lot of misinformation and also to things that we thought we'd squash, like racism and uh, some of the shadowy sides of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm writing songs, I would say over the last course of the last few years, I think what's going on is a lot of the stuff that I'm witnessing Uh, not only globally, but also as a mental health counselor, you know, I listen to people talk about relationships and my own relationships with my family and friends. 
that all kind of seems to start seeping into my writing. And pretty soon I find myself maybe imagining what it would be like to grow up on a reservation uh, in, the, in the Uinta Basin, for example, and what it would be like to uh, be a guy that is uh, profiled in some way and oppressed by the government in some fashion. And sometimes that comes out in little subtle ways. Rocky Top Mountain, for example, to me was... Uh, an illustration on how if you look behind my house, there's mountains behind here. But if, if you kind of look around this whole east bench uh, from Springville all the way to the mouth of the canyon in Provo heading to Sundance, what you'll find is that that's pretty much been pillaged and um, any of the resources that were available have been raided. And so, uh, you know, part of what that song is about is is saying, you know, we went to the top of the mountain, got as much stuff as we could, and then came back down again and got as much as we could. And then we leave, you know? And so you see most of the mountain cut up. Um, and unfortunately, uh, once people come and just dig everything out, uh, it, it not only takes away the beauty, but it takes, it impacts uh, the local ecology as well. And so I think some of the songs are, when you asked about songwriting, I think they're my kind of beliefs kind of get uh, illustrated and, and, you know, just trying to use a few words to say as much as I can, you know. That's interesting. What a, what a great way to really crystallize your ideas too. Cause we, at least me, I, I, I have so many opinions about so many different things and, I make so many judgments and analyses and draw so many conclusions without really thinking it through. But what better way to crystallize those ideas and beliefs than to think about them in a way that allows you to convey the importance of them succinctly? Because it's harder to say things in few words than it is in many words um, and, and, and still get the point across. Yeah. And a lot of songwriters will tell you that it um, I'm sure because you write songs too, Tyler, and, you know, sometimes they just come to you in a matter of seconds. Other times you're working on them for years and, and you never really quite get to a finished place with the song. Um, but it feels like sometimes it's not from me, that it's coming from someplace else. So if it's coming from God or like I said, maybe the whether it's the cosmos or, or kind of the collective energy uh, of of you know, the space around me, who knows? Yeah. There's something to it. There, there's something to be said about having presence of mind too. It's kind of, it's kind of like this whole flow state concept when you're really thinking about what's my next move with my finger. Or, and I think this kind of ties back into what you said about uh, when the red light, when you, you hit the red button and in your, you kind of, your nerves turn on with it. Um, when you're when you're thinking and you're playing analytically it's almost as if you're stifled but when you kind of you kind of hit this flow state and it's, this is not unique to music it's i think this is true with virtually everything but you kind of you kind of drop into the slot almost and and it's in everything is natural the words come the rhythm comes and it, and and you're right it's almost like i'm not doing this i mean i had to get my work on my talent enough to where I'm capable of doing this, but in terms of creating this, it's as if it's just being pumped through me. And there's something really beautiful about that. And I, I've had that experience with music. I've had it on the golf course. I've had it 
in conversation. You just kind of feel this shift when you when you shift from uh, me thinking, analyzing, how am I going to make this the right way? And then you shift into um, I am completely present and, and I'm not thinking about what I'm going to do next because the next thing is just going to happen. And lo and behold, it does. Yeah, I agree. That's and uh, I think Michael Jordan's a great example of that, right? I think at, after a certain point, you're not trying to overthink your shot. You're just getting in the flow of it, right? Yep, yep, the flow state. So so you, you've described now how you write songs. Is there, are there songs written collectively by High Mountain Soul, or are you the songwriter? I'm primarily the songwriter. However, it's been a collective effort over the years. You know, we had a song um, called Love Child. Uh, is that a great one? A great title. <laughs> and uh, and Ashton was a guy that he played guitar with our band for a while and was uh, uh, he, he sang as well and uh, was a backup singer. And also, I think he had a couple songs that we would do, a couple of cover songs where he would sing. And, uh, and he's got a great voice and is a great singer songwriter, but he, uh, when he was traveling in his twenties, he met a gal, I think in South America who was from Spain and guess what? Love child. Yeah, they did. They, they, <laughs> and he's from Payson, Utah. So you could imagine this hippies traveling the world, gets a girl pregnant and he comes back home and he's got this love child. Right. And so, uh, what do you think conservative Mormon grandparents and parents are saying? You got to either, you know, you got to marry the girl, you got to, got to give it up for adoption. You know, all, all the different things that you probably hear when you're, when you're a guy maybe on the road and, and, and somewhat responsible maybe. So, um, and you know, there's some sadness to that song too, because his son lives in Spain. And so I've, when we first wrote it, I think it was a catharsis uh, to, uh, I don't know, just to understand that, you know, this is a song really about a son and it's a way to, to, to kind of transform our pain sometimes into uh, things that you can not only entertain other people with, but also that people can uh, relate to. Cause I think we've all been in a situation, uh, especially for those that live uh, in Utah or have conservative upbringings uh, where maybe people kind of, have a certain perspective of how you ought to live your life, you know, and uh, there might be some pressure to, to move in a certain direction. Yeah, absolutely. So, so a little bit of mix, you know, certainly when it came to what parts people would play, I, I'm the kind of guy that runs it like a drill sergeant, Tyler. Now, <laughs> I, I always appreciate everybody putting their own uh, spin to it. You know, I, I never appreciated being in a band and somebody said, you gotta do it this way. It's gotta go one, two, three, four, you know, yeah. like for me, um, I think our band was probably a little loose in that way and that there was a lot more ability to, to kind of experiment and find something that works as opposed to just kind of, no, you're going to do it this way. And that's the way it's going to be, you know? Yeah. At that point, you might as well just be recording all the parts yourself, you know, just um, do this track and this track. And if it's going to be my way, then what's the point of even playing with other people? Yeah, and I did that. And that doesn't that's not it doesn't sound as good. So, yeah, that's not fun. You've tried now, that? You, well, I, I have, you know, where I would record different tracks, you know, put do the bass line or do the guitar, add some vocals and try to do some 
crappy drums that I, it, it, you know, if you're Stevie wonder, you can get away with that or Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah. Very few. Yeah. Very few. Paul McCartney actually came to mind as we were talking about that. What was the, what was the hardest part of putting the EP together? Well, for me, I think, uh, probably just wanting it to be as polished as I could, you know, I, I don't have, uh, I didn't have a marketing team helping me out or, um, you know, I, I wanted to, to treat it the way, um, you know, Kanye West would treat, uh, his release only, I don't have millions of dollars to advertise or to, now my, there's no name recognition. So what I wanted to do was try to have some kind of reverence for the record. And I didn't know quite how to do that. So I, I did ask a good friend of mine uh, from high school. His name's Doug Herberick, and he's the one that designed our logo. And he's a commercial de uh, design artist and works for a firm and does a lot of work all around the world. And so it was good to have him create our uh, record cover. I, I, I wanted to have, you know, something that reflected, uh, kind of the songs and what he told me is he listened to the to the songs and then kind of decided he was gonna you know kind of just do like the old uh the old-fashioned record covers where it's something kind of cool and uh you know if you look in there there's some little music notes and there's some little stuff hidden in the water of the waterfall cascading down on the record cover um i think the hardest thing for me was to let it go and then uh, wonder what's going to happen, you know, or, or what do I need to do now? And so I think right now it is, okay, how do I move this along? How do I talk about it to other people, get it out there, you know, start mm -hmm. to get, get lined up. We've played a lot of festivals and, um, and bars and clubs, and I don't really want to do too much more of the clubs and bars, to be honest. I, I would like to you know, maybe uh, play a little bit more uh, geared to, you know, venues where people are coming to watch a show and hear right. some good music opposed to, hey, I'm going to have about 10 beers. Oh, there's music playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Um, let's see here. You you talk briefly about uh, your 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 day job, so to speak. Um you, you haven't given that up yet? <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately, no, I'm teasing. I, I love what I do. I'm a mental health counselor. And so I work with folks here in the kind of local area here in Provo and Orem. Uh, I do have some clients in Park City and Salt Lake that'll either talk by phone or, or they'll come down to, to the office. Um, you know, working with folks just like you and me, Tyler, a little bit of everything. Um, you got people going through, uh, a lot of suffering in the world. Um, nobody, nobody can escape it, right? No matter, uh, your socioeconomic, uh, standing or, or whatever you, you're going to suffer in this life. And, uh, part of my job, I guess, is to be a witness to people's suffering. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's been cool about working as a mental health counselor is I'm real humbled, uh, to have people share their stories with me and grateful that people would uh, turn to me uh, for a listening ear. And I kind of look at music as the same way. I think there's a lot of creative artistic uh, elements to uh, counseling, to therapy, you know, kind of like a 
edition where it's focused on improvisation. You really can't improvise unless you have the skill set and you have the chord structures down. In other words, you can't cut corners until you know what the route is to begin with. Yeah. And with music uh, and therapy, I, I think that creative element is what draws me in is I like to listen to people. Um, I've always been fascinated with stories. Uh, my dad was a great storyteller, my older brother. Um, the songwriters that I've loved, Sam Cooke, um, you know, you think of uh, Dan Fogarty, um, or not Dan Fogarty, uh, lead singer to Creedence Clearwater. Yeah, what, Jim? It's Fogarty for sure. I think it is Dan Fogarty. Okay. Yeah. Is it Dan Fogarty? I think so. Great writer, right? Just is able to tell a story um, and yeah. get get the message across, you know, and the feeling across. And I think with uh, therapy, a big part is listening, just like with music, listening, hearing, um, you know, you don't want to inject too much. Uh, occasionally you want to kind of reflect back what, what you're hearing. So people know that, you know, you're not off the mark. Um, yeah. But I think all of us, especially now, uh, there's a bit more loneliness uh, to the tint of the world right now uh social structures have been kind of obliterated in some ways i when our band for example the last time we've rehearsed was march 2020 wow. what happened we were rehearsing and we were talking about some of the next steps maybe we're going to do some more recording and then uh the, the governor of utah said hey only family members can start hanging out that you can't you know at first it was groups no less than eight and then it was no less than five and i had group therapy sessions that i was doing uh some of that work was with alcoholics on monday nights at seven o'clock and uh, i had family groups once a month that would come in and uh and the families would come in and kind of get some support and talk about some of the insanity uh you know associated with alcoholism and substance abuse problems but you know, sometimes when the families came, you had more than 12 people and there was there was all this kind of uh, outside pressure from the government to say, hey, you could only have so many people. And it took a hit on our band. And, uh, you know, we stopped practicing, stopped playing together. And uh, and then, of course, with therapy is the group work was uh, significantly diminished. Now, I did do with another group that I was doing. We switched over to Zoom and did just fine. But I will say for the, the poor alcoholics and addicts, Zoom. Some have found their way with it, but most of the ones that I've worked with, they, they want to be in the room. They want to be looking uh, eyeball to eyeball with somebody, you know. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit different to try to to try to work around some of the obstacles with the pandemic. Um, but that that was probably that's been one of the harder things is, you know, where to go from here, uh, even going to live uh, venues. Uh, it's still kind of, you know, I was at Disney World and. I had, was that the right decision to make during a pandemic um, in Florida? You know, uh, there's still some nervousness. Not that I, I don't think I'm a hypochondriac or anything, but I think after a couple of years of not being around a lot of people to all of a sudden be thrown in spaces where there's lots of people, it's new for me. Yeah. And so some of the social support, you know, going over to, par I don't think I've been to one party in the last two years coming up in March. Uh, we haven't had any get-togethers other than maybe small little family get-togethers with my brother and his family, for example. And I know that's on me because most of my friends have been vaccinated and I'm vaccinated. And uh, 
you know, to, I think what's happened, it's hard to get back on track after you've been knocked off, you know, as far as socially. So that's been one of the harder things over the course of time, you know? Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You, you, you drew a corollary, corollary between music and, and therapy. And I, it's interesting. I, I wanted, I, I kind of jotted down a few questions and that was one of the questions that I was going to ask. And I thought, well, he might, might need some time to think about that one, but you answered it without me even asking it. And, um, yeah, that, that is, there is a connection there between the two, um, both tied, both tied with telling and listening to stories. And you, you talked about, um, you can't, you can't cut corners until you know the path. I like that. And, and it's, it's funny when I, when I, you look back at when you first start something, you have all this information, you, the inclination is to do more. So it's, so I, I, when, with music, for instance, when, as I was playing lead guitar, it's like, I, I thought faster and better and more was better because I was showcasing my so-called skills. But as I played more, I realized that sometimes just a little lick here, a little lick there actually sounds so much better than an awesome solo going the whole time. You know, you, mm. you, you don't real you don't hear the beauty of it if it's just an onslaught of it. But when you just hear little touches of it, it, it does sound beautiful. And, and I imagine having not been a therapist, I don't know, but I am a counselor at law. Um, you early on when you don't have the confidence, it, it, it's almost as if you say more to demonstrate that, that you know what you're talking about. Um, but now having been doing what I've been doing for many years, I can say less. And I think it probably instills more confidence. It's, it's, uh, it's just knowing when to, when to act, when to sing, when to talk, as opposed to just, okay, I'm just going to keep on talking and keep on playing because I have to show how good I am. Um, just yeah. being careful with note selection, word selection. Um, you, you a lot of jazz. So one of the things I've learned from musicians that learned, because you and I, I don't think you learned to sight read, right? We, most guitar players, they learn by ear or they learn through what's called tablature, right? Tabs. Mm -hmm. And they don't learn the notes and they don't always know time signatures and uh, music theory. Um, and so then what happens, what you miss, unfortunately, because we didn't have that, you miss some of the phrases that go along with, with people that do have formal training, like play to the song, play to the song. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of like a basketball team, you know, uh, or a football team. You can take uh, the Cleveland Browns who are five and five, right? And uh, OBJ, uh, he's not on the Browns and he wasn't getting the ball enough, right? But part of their offensive scheme is to play to the, to, to, what's going to be best for that particular play. In other words, not play to OBJ or to a superstar on the team. It's whoever is going to be open on this play is going to get the ball or that this scheme is going to work for this particular play. But it just so happens that the running back will be the one that, that gets the ball down the field. And I think so often in life, not just with music or sports, it's get me the ball. I want the ball more. It doesn't matter if, you know, if we lose, I just want to make sure I get my eight receptions for the game. And I think music can be that way uh, at times. It's, you know, I, I want to be, have my time to shine. Hey, 
this music is not fast enough to him. Let's get something really grooving, you know? And I, I totally understand uh, why certain musicians are drawn to, to other styles of music, as opposed to, for example, the music that I do. Um, because for some people it could be a little boring as this is kind of slow. This, this rhythm is, is kind of just centers around uh, the lyrics or whatever. Um, but I also think there is a magic to sometimes just what you said, just kind of playing to the song. And so a jazz musician or a classical musician knows that part of this song, they're just sitting there the whole time, you know, and then their time to shine is only for a few seconds, you know, and then, and, but they're playing to the, to the song. It sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? When mm-hmm. all of the horn sections start to gradually come into play or uh, the brass over here. And so I think that's the same with songwriting is, learning to lay back where you don't need to be filling the whole room. And, and, and when you do need to be keeping the rhythm or, or being solid that you don't hold back, that you're keeping like a freight train moving it forward, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's coming to the understanding that silence doesn't mean nothing. Silence is, uh, equates to playing the note of silence. It's intentionally, it's being intentionally silent is, is playing playing to the song i guess playing playing your part and at that time you're playing silence yeah it's, it's being intentional if your ep fell into the right hands and let's say you landed a new gig as a, a professional musician entirely would you cash in your therapist chips for the life of a rock star no but i'd probably i'd probably do a lot more music um what i'd probably end up doing is transforming the therapy into more group oriented work, you know, maybe more workshop oriented stuff, maybe less one-on-one just because if, if I had more time going to music or, or to something else. Um, but I, but, you know, for me, the idea of playing music, um, traveling around the world, the way I probably associated it when I was in my twenties is very different now, you know, um, uh, in my twenties, I could have, probably been okay with being in a tight cramped uh car or 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 truck or you know what i mean going across with a bunch of stinky other people (laughs) boy that doesn't you know when you have a family and you have a couple of kids and and you got a decent thing going it doesn't doesn't seem as attractive now i love to travel and i love people and so to to be able to see different cultures and to see uh, other opportunities would be awesome and I would I would appreciate that opportunity if if, if it came. But I also I have no um, you know I, I I think I did the, whatever dream I had about being the rock star or something that that unfortunately is um, not quite the same. But it has transformed into something different, which means I'm a musician first, and so. Whether I am uh, on stage playing for a living or not, it doesn't change the fact that when I come home, I'm going to pick up my guitar and I'm going to play and I'll probably write another song down the road. Whether people listen to the songs or not is, you know, that's that's irrelevant. It would be nice. I think most musicians like to share their work. And so it would be nice if more people listened to the music. But that's uh, it's not something that I'm really pining for. Well said. Let's let's um let's shift for a moment and talk talk a little bit about life as a therapist. Seems like a good juncture at which to do this. Um, over over the arc of your career, 
um, I'll, you, I don't know how much you can disclose or not disclose, but you worked at a high end rehab for a while there. And then, and then you, you segued into, into private practice it, it is, are there other stops along the way that I'm unaware of? Yeah, I worked at a place called Cirque Lodge, uh, which is a rehab center. Um, they have a couple of facilities here in Utah. One is up in Sundance, up in the mountains. That's just real beautiful, real wonderful place to try to find some sanity and get treatment. And uh, and boy, are they expensive. I think for, um, you know, a private room, it's about 79000 or was. And so I don't know how much those those rooms are now. And it's up in just the secluded area. So for certain people that have um, the wherewithal, what a beautiful place to find sobriety. The other place is down below in, uh, in the city of Orem. And it's more of what you would think of as a typical rehab center in the sense that it's uh, sprawling and, you know, kind of more clinical as far as it's uh, the way it's laid out. And when um, you said 79,000, just to contextualize or clarify, rather, that's a month, right? That's for 30 days. Yeah. yeah. Now, now I think, you know, to be fair, but still to show you the expense, I think, and, and you know, Cirque Lodge is one of the top places in the country, but I think, I think it's 26,000 and down at the studio, maybe, maybe you can get less expensive and that's their other facility and insurance. I think they do take insurance. Insurance could cover quite a bit of that cost. Mm-hmm. I think they had an employee discount for families that was about 6,000 a month. So that's, you know, when you consider the break and costs, that's significant. However, still 6,000 for a lot of Americans when I think 80% of Americans make $20 or less an hour. Mm-hmm. Imagine that's probably an expense that a lot of folks just don't have the ability to afford, you know, but Mm -hmm. that's where I cut my teeth and treatment. So I, I got, I did an internship there and then stayed on a little bit and they allowed me to kind of create this, uh, to allow me to do some, uh, you know, after work counseling with some of the folks that had left the facility. And I, and I started to kind of build up a practice. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about, I'm going to to dive a little bit deeper into your experience at, at Cirque Lodge, which is this high end rehab. And so I just want to devote a few minutes to this and then contrast that with private practice. Um, And, and we've talked about all the problems that have arisen since March of 2020, one of which is substance abuse uh, in all of its shapes and forms is on the rise. Um, and, and so a place like Cirque is probably more relevant than ever right now. We talked about the cost, you, you know, 26000 for the low end, eighty for the high end. Length of stay, we're talking about 30 days. What do you think is the success rate? You know, I have a lifetime history of waking up and taking a pill or snorting a line or having a drink. And I, I'm, I'm doing that to the point where I have to spend $80,000 to even have a chance at, at, at changing my life. What is the success rate? You know, I think, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of um, data is, is, is still out there because, you know, there's just not a lot. It's hard to track, number one. Do you track people for 90 days after they leave a treatment center? Is it for a year? five years. But anecdotally, 
you know, over the years, what I've observed is that um, what you might think is complete abstinence, what might be being taught at a treatment center, it seems to me that it's rare that a person has complete abstinence, meaning that they don't go back to some substance eventually. Um, maybe it's reduced, the frequency is reduced somehow, the intensity is reduced, or maybe the actual um, lethality of the substance has been reduced. Maybe they're not using heroin anymore and, and uh, they're, they are smoking marijuana to, to kind of manage or something. Um, but also what I found is when people keep having influences like substances uh, after they've had a pretty extensive history of dependence like heroin or alcohol, it's pretty tough then to just dabble with substances because it sure seems like eventually you get back sucked back into it again to where like they say in the 12-step program um, in AA that you either end up back into a treatment center again or into some type of institution right or a hospital mm -hmm. where you go or you die mm -hmm. and, uh, and I have some good friends uh, unfortunately uh, some of my best friends that have uh, died from substance abuse um, and in my 20s, um, I worked with a cook when I was at a group home and he and I was using some pills that he was giving me. And I don't know if they were 10 milligram Oxycontin pills or morphine pills, but I was getting uh, these pills all the time. And uh, and I was uh, and I would I would crush up three at a time and snort them. And I had friends that would trade me for weed uh, for these pills. And uh what I didn't correlate was there were moments I was getting intense flu-like symptoms mm -hmm. and I tell my wife, Hey, I'm sick again. Jeez. I felt like I was sick last weekend. And, uh, and I was so naive to, uh, to opioid addiction that I just assumed I was just uh, getting sick. And it wasn't until um, years later when I got another job working at a, working at Cirque Lodge, actually, that I realized looking back that, that geez, I was addicted to pills and didn't even know it. Part of what was happening is, is he'd give me a baggie of pills every so often. And so I, you know, it, I'd run out and, you know, be out for a few weeks and then all of a sudden he'd give me some more. And, uh, and so I, I just never had a consistent use up to that point. And what was what was happening was, is I was building a tolerance and then I'd get sick and then I'd, you know, my tolerance would go back down. Um, and it was a good thing that I never connected the dots, uh, because, because it had, I connected those dots, then I'd probably, I, I probably would have never been working at a rehab to begin with. I probably would, uh, have followed, uh, the likely course of some of my friends, for example, and, and followed the road of addiction. Now on the continuum of addiction, geez, you know, there's, there's lots of addictive habits we have as Americans, you know, mm -hmm. our pattern, uh, just with, you know, how many times does the Amazon truck go down my cul-de-sac? <laughs> I know my wife's, uh, you know, whatever it is that just constant, um, we're, we're never satiated as Americans. I think Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist said that America was too extroverted and too distracted and too consumed with consumption. He was riding in a car and all of a sudden, this is in the 60s, the early 60s, and the, the roof starts to retract. It's a convertible. What is going on? We're driving on the road and the radio turns on. 
And he just couldn't believe it. There's radio blasting when you should be focused on the road. Uh, I think uh, poor Carl Jung would have a hard time digesting the fast pace of society uh, right now. All this stuff that we're glued to our phones so much that scientists are saying that we're developing, that we're evolving before our very eyes, developing a little nodule in our necks because we're looking down at our phones. And so we have all of these addictions that I think are tied in. You know, whether it's sitting my daughter who's turned seven, she said, uh, I asked her what one of her favorite hobbies are. And she's real honest. And she said, I love eating potato chips and watching TV. Great <laughs> <laughs> uh, hobby. A lot of apparently a lot of Americans also like that hobby, so much so that we're obese yeah. and yep. we're dying of heart disease. And so, you know, food is an addiction that we don't probably, I mean, we talk about it, but it's, to me, it's as deadly as heroin. And uh, it absolutely is. And it's it's probably a slower death because you don't, it's, you don't have those other compounding factors. You're not worried about dirty needles and all the things that that go along with living a life of illegality. You know, it's just not safe to be a heroin addict, you know, but yeah. but food is just as deadly. It's just slower, slower and, and safer. But I mean, you look at all of the, all, all of the deaths related with heart disease and obesity and diabetes. And it's, it's all food. It all comes back to food. Um, man. Yeah. So, so true. Did CERT treat all types, types of addiction? Did you have food food you know, addicted we, we, people in there gambling sex was it all all yeah it did but you know it, uh they were lower in numbers those kind of situations and sometimes you'd get cases that were you know significant psychiatric cases where there wasn't much of a substance abuse problem as serious uh psychiatric problems and self-medicating type of a thing self-medicating or, or maybe the family just doesn't have any other resources. Where else do you put, there's not a lot of uh, rehab like facilities just for mental health. You know, there's most, of, there's not most are around substance abuse. And then if you're lucky to go to a hospital, they'll only watch you for a few days or a couple of weeks at most, unless there's some kind of, you know, written, you know, reason that they need to be hospitalized for, for longer, but usually most places are short term and they're looking to move you out. Yeah. I, during the pandemic, I, I thought I needed rehab, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a a substance abuse problem, um, that was, that necessitated rehab. And I didn't have any diagnosable ailment that warranted any other type of treatment, but I just felt so, tired i felt in not in the sense that i wanted to go to sleep but just down and like i don't know if depression was the right thing but just just heavy it was like the world was hard and 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 i and i felt like i needed just a retreat of some sort and my wife and i were talking and and it wasn't like a serious pursuit but we just like looked around to see what kind of stuff was out there and we we kind of turned into a business idea like what a great idea just to have like a two week retreat, two week type rehab where it's like you turn in your electronics and it's, it's as if it's rehab. It's like, but instead of working about working on undoing behaviors and, and letting go of addictions, you're just focusing on wellness and 
becoming a better human and and disconnecting from the outside world for you know 10 days or whatever whatever it might be i think there's a i think there's a need for that a rehab but it's not for not a substance abuse it's it's just a place to go and and grow for 10 days and disconnect i think we just need a almost need a break from time to time i never found that place i never got to go but we talked about the idea of of inventing a place like that i'm sure it's out there somewhere did it did it um having multiple types of of substance abuse issues under one roof um did that create any problems did you have the folks like like the heroin addict saying that's food's not an addiction that's that's just (laughs) food did you see that there was there wasn't too much of that but you you probably relate to this the opioid addicts, they like to get together, you know. Those guys kind of, oh, cool, you you use heroin. <laughs> then you got the alcoholics that are like, hey, we didn't use any drugs, man. Yeah. I, I didn't use alcohol. <laughs> I didn't well, do drugs, just alcohol, which is a drug. Yeah. I just threw up all over myself on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but – uh and then you had the the crystal meth addicts. They were a few and far between, but they were uh, they really like anybody. Really, you know, they were kind of often loners, um, and also just wrestling with a lot of residual psychosis. You know, because usually by the time you make it to a rehab, and it's because of amphetamines, uh, the mind is pretty scrambled with a lot of a lot of stuff, right? Um, you know what? the government has something in my brain or whatever it is that that's sad, you know, because it it can take a long time to undo that. And some people never quite undo the, you know, the psychological trauma associated with uh, substance induced psychosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see, do you see alcoholism as a disease? I mean, that's, that's kind of, I don't know if that's a prevailing wisdom or not, but but it, it seems that there's a, at least two camps, and alcoholism is a disease is one of those. And when and I guess when I say alcoholism, we can we can broaden that, broaden the aperture a little bit and, and include addiction, uh, uh, the the disease of addiction or the disease of alcoholism. That's that's one way of looking at. It. And then there's others that say, hey, this is just an addictive substance. And I've used it, and now I'm addicted. And then once I break that addiction, I will no longer have this. What, how do you see it? How do you come down on that debate? Well, g- great question. You know, you're a lawyer, and if you had a guy that has no experience with law telling you that, you know, this is what the law is all about, you know, he might have some good points, right? But you're a lawyer. So, you know what the law is about. You know, you may not know every facet of every type of law to practice, but you know the general, you know, facets of law. Mm-hmm. And same thing, the American Medical Association has recognized alcoholism as a disease since the 1930s. So the idea that we're even having a conversation about whether or not it's a disease is, is I think, one of the things that kind of shocks Europe about the United States. Like, They've recognized global warming, for example, as a problem since the 90s, and we're still debating on whether or not it exists, right, or whatever it is that we debate about. And I think that's the problem. You know, maybe this is my uh, critique of the United States at some time. It feels like we give equal weight to people that have no idea what they're talking about 
and give them a place at the table with the scientists and doctors and people that have studied their whole careers, for example, on addiction. Um, there's a great book called Never Enough. And I apologize that I don't remember the name of the, the author, but she's in recovery and she's a neuroscientist and she goes through basically the way the brain is impaired or impacted by every kind of substance that, that people use. And it's real fascinating. It's a great, it's some of the latest science on the way the brain's uh, impacted. Um, in the thirties, they knew cirrhosis of the liver that was one of the reasons that they labeled it as a disease, but they also saw something long before anybody ever got cirrhosis of the liver is they found that a functioning professional businessman, for example, that has a wife and kids is smart, well, well liked in society, all of a sudden can turn into a very different person uh, when he drinks so much so that that now he's kind of turning into an outcast and that now is, you know, he's no longer employed or he's getting arrested. He's, he's getting in fights or acting belligerent in the street. And that was the other thing that even in the thirties, doctors were recognizing that alcohol makes some people insane, right? It makes people lose their mind. And that's part of the, the disease as well as the, it's a, it's not only a disease of the body, but it's a disease of the brain to the point that, you know, part of the reason that it's so difficult to treat alcoholics and addicts is we've fooled our brains into thinking that it's as important to get our next fix as it is to breathe, for example. And, mm -hmm. and what happens, our brainstem controls our nervous system, and that's kind of what regulates all the autonomic functioning that, that kind of keeps us alive, like your heart beating right now, your lungs are breathing all the things that we don't have to think about, like our gastrointestinal tract at play, all those things are just working on their own. We don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And brain lies on top of the brainstem. And if you could imagine, if your brainstem fails to send a message to your heart to keep beating, what's going to happen? It's done. It's going to stop. Die. And the midbrain lies on top of the, the brainstem. And that's what regulates kind of all our, our emotional and physical kind of stability, like our sex drive when you're hungry you're thirsty. Oh, I want to go get a drink of water. That's your midbrain telling you, yeah, go get a drink of water. If somebody were to break into your house at three in the morning, that would be your midbrain responding to that. And so over time with addiction, what might've started out as a couple of pills or drinking beers on the weekend with friends may now turn into a daily thing, or now every weekend I got to get loaded. And what's going on is the brainstem is starting to take over the midbrain's functions. And the brainstem is saying, hey, you're fixed. It's Friday night. It's as, as as important as it is for you to breathe. And so that's a big part of the, the problem is it takes anywhere from a few months to a couple of years to repair that interplay between the brainstem and the midbrain to kind of change course. And I think why rehabs, unfortunately, they're a good start. But you think about it, I, I can think of how many times I would say to a client after they were staying there 90 days or however long. And, it, hey, I would recommend that you go to an intensive outpatient program where you're going to get, you know, groups and other support, meet with therapists a couple of times a week, at least for a year. See how that goes to get you past because the majority of relapses occur in the first 90 days of leaving the treatment center. So my thought and most of the profession, professionals today, according to research, would say, get them past that year mark, get as much support as you can. And if you get past the year mark, it's more likely 
that life will be a little more stable for that person if they can, and, and more likely that they'll continue with their sobriety. But so many times people who would say, hey, thanks a lot, Tim. I'll take it from here. In other words, I thousand to be here. Uh, I'm not going to protect my investment at all. See you later. <laughs> and then relapse is usually around the corner because shit happens. People get stressed and back to the, you know, what's going on with the brain. They haven't had enough time to recondition their brains. And so that protective sheath uh, that, that protects the brain, like what do they say when you leave a rehab, go to 12 step meetings, get a sponsor, you know, all those kind of things, get back connected with family and friends that support you and want you to be sober. Don't don't go hang out with the guys that are shooting up heroin, right? That's probably not a good place to be if you're just got out of rehab. So I've also yes, heard. I agree that it is a, it's a disease. You do. Okay. I've also heard um, that the frontal lobe, uh, it, it, it loses efficacy after substance abuse um, for prolonged periods of time. And, and so, that, I mean, this is, this is the, the part of your brain that's going to help you make logical decisions, make grown-up decisions. It's going to control all the impulses and everything like this. And if it's running at diminished capacity, so now you have diminished impulse control coupled with your brainstem being hijacked with this fallacy that beer is tantamount to breath. Um, so you, it's kind of the perfect storm for, for relapse. And, and, and so the, the, I, I guess the, the analogy is that the, you go to these 12 step meetings you work with your sponsor, you, you have a network of people that are protecting you. They kind of serve as your external, um, frontal lobe, they, right? They, they, they get to, they get to jump in and, and act and do the thing that your brain would otherwise do help you make those help you control your impulses, help you make smarter decisions because your brain is not at the capacity at which it can do so itself. Do you yeah. The frontal lobes part, that's what allows people to come up with the funny lies they make up, right? Is because their frontal lobes are like, no, they'll believe this story. <laughs> oh, the yeah. <laughs> this is a great, I always love this story about this one guy I was working with um, because anybody that's used cocaine can relate to this, right? It's uh, he, he was on family vacation in South Carolina at the beach. <laughs> Decided to use some cocaine and all through the night. <laughs> pretty didn't sleep a wink, tried to lay in bed and heard the birds out, you know, starting to get daylight. What did he think? Well, I might as well get up and start using some more cocaine. So, <laughs> up started using some more cocaine and his kids and wife get up a little bit and his wife says have you been up all night he says why of course not i got up <laughs> i love this story i don't know why this one but he, he said I, I got up for all of you to get a head start in the morning and she said what's all that white stuff on your face well he said i got some powdered donuts for all of you she says, "Where are oh, they? Great! All right, <laughs> I ate them all. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the insanity, and that's a great example. The frontal lobes not at play, right? There's, there's no reasoning thing, and she's not going to buy this. This is a dumb lie. Yeah. Um, none of that matters, does it? Oh no, I, yeah, I, that is that is really funny. Oh man, so with with kind of the 
the abysmal, uh, I mean, I guess success is, it's a, it's kind of a nebulous term and was rehab successful. If you rela- if you relapse 90 days later, well, you could say no because you used again, or you could say yes, because you were sober for 90 days and then you relapsed and now you have more information. So this, I mean, success could mean a lot of different things, but knowing that it's very unlikely that that an individual is going to go to rehab, leave rehab, and then never revert to any type of substance use. I mean, maybe not abuse, but at least substance use of some sort. With that knowledge, I mean, why don't we just? When I say we. Why don't why don't the powers that be just deal with that reality instead of saying instead of setting an almost impossibly high standard of if you ever do use any type of substance, your options are jails, institutions, or death. If if everybody, with almost, if almost everybody is going to revert to using some type of a substance, doesn't it make sense to kind of factor that into the plan? What's the reasoning there? Why don't we just deal with the realities instead of deal with an almost impossibility? Well, I think this is where this is where it gets real interesting to me. And, and I don't know what the, you know, what the stats, cause I don't know if they're stats. So it gets back to what you observe and what you think you're perceiving, but there are, there's a fraction or, or, or a certain amount of folks that do get it right. They, they do leave drugs and alcohol behind. And uh, in fact, the ones that typically do are the ones that follow the re- recommendations, right? That they go to these, they do the extra work after they leave the treatment center. And so I think that's a good question. You know, how do you reach maybe the guys that are just going to relapse? Uh, Cause of, with, um, but I don't, I don't know uh, if you change the model. I think there are some models, you know, maybe that are less 12 step oriented. Uh, and I think that that's a good, uh, option for people that are less, you know, maybe they're agnostic or atheist and they don't, you know, that the language, uh, this idea of God is harder for them to, to kind of connect with. And so going and focusing more on cognitive behavioral approaches, you know, one of the things that I've learned, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think in this, so for some of my friends in the 12 step, uh, community. I, I know there's a lot of reverence that I even hold toward toward the 12-step uh, recovery community. My older brother is, is uh, an alcoholic that's in recovery. And a great example, this idea of sponsors, that uh, somebody that's been through it, and you can call them, and, uh, and that you have these intense cravings. And my older brother told me about how much he marveled at the idea that when I talk to somebody and I'm going through these intense cravings, they subside. Like that's pretty miraculous to think about it. If I if I feel like killing myself in the moment, a lot of people report just talking to somebody sometimes makes that feeling that seemed pretty overwhelming and uncontrollable. Now it's somewhat manageable. And I think that is pretty interesting. In fact, his sponsor, he he uh my um my older brother and I, when I was 13 and he was 16, we had a lawn mowing route in Akron, Ohio. And that's where Alcoholics Anonymous was born. And part of his lawn mowing route was the historic home of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Bob Smith's house, who was a co-founder of AA, along with Bill Wilson. 
And uh, what I remember is when I was 13, Ed, this guy that had some reputation about hiring young kids to, to work landscaping jobs, his little red Datsun truck was just filled with just trash, McDonald's wrappers, half-eaten sandwiches and coffee cups. And he, he dipped uh, tobacco and he would spit it out his window and it would just ooze off his lip and land on the side of his door. He never washed his truck. So he had this brown door and we would be squeezed in this truck and he would drop us off with these uh, lawnmowers and we'd go on our route and then he would pick us up and it was disgusting. And then my brother's license. So first thing that I remembered about my brother getting his license is we didn't have to ride in Ed's truck anymore. Ed would just drop off the lawnmower at the, uh, you know, wherever we were. And then I'd get a ride with my brother. And so that was cool. And my brother would, uh, he was 16 and looked like he was 25. So he could pick up a six pack of beer on the way to work. And he did, he picked up a six pack of beer and we'd smoke weed in the car. Um, and I'd go do my, my lawn mowing route and he would do his. And one of these times as people were filing in for a 12 step meeting, some guy sees all these beer cans crinkled up and pulls them aside and says to him, hey, you ought to come into the meeting uh, that we're having. Do you know whose house this is? And my brother said, yeah, it's the quack that found that cult AA. And no, thank you. I don't want to go in there with a bunch of brainwashed people. And the guy laughed and he said, well, you fit right in with us if you ever change your mind. And uh, fast forward 20 years later, he's in uh, a hospital bed in Germany where he lives with his wife and daughter and, and his wife is telling that she's going to leave him because at that time he's drinking 12 big German bottled beers a night and washing pills down with those and is basically in a bad place physically as well as mentally and uh, she says but I'll give you another chance if you complete this outpatient program and he's given a book of Alcoholics Anonymous and gets to the doctor's opinion and is reading and he thinks back, you know, 20 years ago and thinks back to that moment, um, you know, where where he could have had an opportunity to to go get help. And uh, and it was a, a real a low moment in the sense where a lot of regret and he was sobbing. Um, but then he found a sponsor and he started going to 12 step meetings. And as a matter of fact, uh, his sponsor tried to call him last year. And uh, when he got to call him back, uh, he had found that uh, his wife had told him that his sponsor had died. And I always found that real touching that uh, one of the last things that his sponsor had done was to reach out to one of the sponsees before he died. Yeah, um, I know. I know that you are. I know that I've taken a lot of your time and it's and it's valuable. And I really, really wanted to talk to you about the private practice because that that really intrigues me and it's more, it's more broadly applicable to probably a lot of my listeners. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd like to have you back sometime to talk more about that. I, I think that'd be fascinating to get inside the mind of a therapist and, and talk about how a session goes. But I think I just over, I over, um, I was a little over ambitious. I, th I thought we'd get through a lot of stuff and then maybe I can have you back for another conversation on that, on that sometime. If you, if you'd be willing to, that'd be cool. That sounds great. Awesome. Well, I, I do want to, I want to end with a question that I ask virtually everybody and it's applicable to you. You, the things that you do, the things that you, you have passion about, be that music or therapy, 
uh, the two things we've talked about. Uh, they're they're both they're both heavily focused on giving. You are you're giving of yourself in in virtually every capacity, and we all know that you can only give what you have. And so that begs the question of what are you doing for yourself to position yourself such that you can give so much? What, what, what are the things that you do to take care of yourself? Thank you. Great question. Well, in the mornings, I take my dog. I have a puppy that's a Swiss mountain dog. He's about eight months old and he's pretty rambunctious. Um, so we will go on a morning hike it's about 6 15 and we do a little loop out the backyard we connect to uh, the Bonneville shoreline trail which is part of uh, a trail system in utah and we do like a 20 minute loop and that seems like a good way where i, I kind of um, get a chance to to reflect and and uh, you know after about 10 minutes of being up on the mountain uh, whatever anxieties I have, whatever worries I have or stressors seem to kind of go away. And I start to think about the day and, and then it's starting to, the sun is starting to come up. And so by the time we reach the house, the kids now are back downstairs in the kitchen for breakfast. And my wife gets them all ready to go uh, while I go get ready. And she's off to work as a school counselor. And, uh, and then I drop the kids off and go to go to work. But for us, we love mountain biking as a family. We, you know, I've been taking the kids on some trails out behind the house. Uh, we love snowboarding and skiing, uh, doing stuff as a family. My music is, is a cathartic process in, in and of itself. You know, it's, it's time consuming, but it also rewards me. Um, you know, trying to have time with family. Um, the deficit right now, I think is, uh, I, I definitely think there's some social deficit in my life. Luckily, my brother kind of plays that role. He's a great friend of mine. And so have some of my musician friends where we were getting in together in the studio and recording during the pandemic. And that, that was real fun. Um, but those are the things that I tend to do. Exercise typically is outside. You know, I'm, I'm doing stuff like uh, doing some landscaping in the yard and hardscaping and things like that, planting trees and things like that that's in bushes and flowers all those kind of things gardens that's a lot of fun to me and rewarding and that tends to to be one of the things that seems to rejuvenate me is getting time in the mountains i think there's a restorative power of being in the place that i get to live uh, people fly from all over the world to come to provo utah and i'm real grateful to live here uh, you know, just in a few minutes, I can be in wilderness lands and get a chance to see uh, wildlife and cool stuff like that. So that's one of the ways I recharge my batteries, Tyler. Thanks for that. I, I always enjoy listening to people's responses and I can I, I get I get a lot of those responses and I get to pick the things that I think would be helpful for me and then apply them to my life. So I appreciate that. And and with that, we are about out of time. But before we wind her down, uh, tell everybody where they can find um, High Mountain Soul. Yeah, go um, to either Spotify or Apple Music. Um, you'll find our YouTube. We have some YouTube stuff. Um, we're going to be putting out some videos too. So feel free to Google High Mountain Soul. Um, and uh, you can find where our links are on Spotify and Amazon Music. Awesome. 
And I think we've we've agreed to um, finish this discussion later. And uh, I'd I'd love to have you back to talk more about private practice. And I'd also I really wanted to talk about uh, the Skinwalker story because I needed to have it on the record that somebody else saw what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we could maybe uh, a little portion towards private practice and maybe the rest of the session towards the the weird stuff that's hard to explain in life. How about that? I love it. That's a great, great, uh, gives me something to look forward to. So we'll get on the calendar soon here. And uh, thanks so much for your time. It was great talking to you, man. Hey, Tyler, thanks for the podcast. Great job. I appreciate your interviewing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a blast. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Wellbeings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.